0: You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Thank you, Chris. This is our fourth out of six Sundays in this sermon series, and we've looked at other obstacles. Last week, we talked about fear of failure. A lot of times, we're just afraid to fail, Um, and we've looked at Other obstacles, like maybe we just don't know enough people who don't know the Lord, and maybe we need to build that into our lives more. And today, the obstacle we look at is that we worry we won't know enough. We'll get in a conversation with someone, and maybe we don't know enough, and so we can't help out. To inspire us in that, we will read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. C.S. Lewis, famous for writing the Chronicles of Narnia and many other Christian apologetic works, did not start out as a Christian. In his spiritual autobiography called Surprised by Joy, he recounts how he took many, 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 many steps to being an Oxford professor who was a devout atheist and even dabbled in Norse mythology to a devout Christian. And it took many intellectual steps. I can think of no more intimidating spiritual sparring partner than an Oxford professor. What if Lewis's sparring partners didn't know enough to convince him that Christianity was true. Now, luckily for Lewis, he did have a few of those people, namely other Oxford professors, famous authors in their own right, Owen Barfield, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. They were very close friends. And Lewis would often spar with them. And eventually, if Lewis had an objection to Christianity, they would be able to say, no, no, that's not intellectually plausible. And they really, really helped Lewis out. But in reading Lewis's spiritual autobiography, something unusual is there that we wouldn't necessarily suspect. At one point, Lewis becomes intellectually convinced that Christianity is true, and yet he's still not a Christian. It will require a palpable spiritual experience for him to realize, no, 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 I actually trust in the Lord Jesus and follow him. It's not just about intellectual assent. I recount that story to acknowledge that a lot of people don't share their faith because they're afraid they won't know what to say because they won't know enough, or they'll get in a conversation with someone who seems to know more than they do. And if C.S. Lewis had been your friend, you fear you might have failed him. What I want you to see in this sermon is that you can overcome your fear by just knowing a few things. When we talk about overcoming our fear of not knowing enough, well, let me tell you, there are some things you should know. Let's talk about him in this sermon. And yet, you don't have to be an Oxford scholar either. You don't have to be an expert in theology or philosophy. What I want you to see is you should know just enough, but you don't have to know everything. So let's overcome the obstacle today by talking about knowing the content of the gospel, knowing the invisible Jesus, and knowing your story. Knowing the content of the gospel, knowing the invisible Jesus, and knowing your story. So first, knowing the content of the gospel. There are some basics you should know, and thankfully for us, Paul lays them out in verses three through eight. He recounts key details in the life of Jesus Christ. Note in verse three, he says, for Christ died for your sins. Verse four, he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. And then in all of his post-resurrection encounters, he begins to appear to Cephas first, that is Peter, by the way, Peter, and then to the twelve. And then in verse 6 to 500 people, and then in verse 7 to James, that is Jesus' brother who was at that time a leader in the Jerusalem church, and then verse 8, last of all to me, Paul says. Now, Jesus had ascended into heaven by the time he encounters Paul, but if you read about it in the book of Acts, he appears to Paul as if in bodily form and blinds Paul just for a little while. These are all post-resurrection accounts. And Paul is saying, this is actually the content of what is supposed to be believed and trusted in. This is the content of what is to be lived from. And if that's true, we need to make a few observations or a few summaries of what the content of the gospel is. The first thing is that we should know, we should know this intellectually, that Christianity is not first a religious or spiritual claim. Let me say that again. Christianity is not first a religious or spiritual claim it is a historical claim. Jesus Christ was a real person in the first century and he really did defeat death in his resurrection. And that is the first truth of Christianity, a historical claim, Jesus Christ defeats death, just like General Sherman defeated the South in the Civil War, just like General MacArthur defeated the Japanese in the Western Japanese Pacific Theater in World War II. Jesus Christ defeated death in history. The first claim of Christianity is historical, and that is something we should know. The second thing we should know is that the historical life of Christ was a substitute for our imperfect lives. In verse 3, it says that Christ died for, for, in place of our sins. Because of our sins, he was the substitute, he was the replacement And in addition to the cross, I would say that so was the resurrection. I cannot defeat death myself, but Jesus Christ defeated death on my behalf so that someday I too will be resurrected. And then you could take that principle and apply it backwards to the life of Christ. Everything Christ did in his life that is recorded in the Gospels is a substitute for you and me. Christ was born for us. Christ lived a perfect life for us. We needed the credit of someone's perfection so that when God looks at us, the Christian is justified. That's what the doctrine of justification means, that when God looks at us, he actually sees a perfect Jesus because of his perfect life. Christ was baptized for us because we're imperfect people. We can't even repent perfectly, and that's what baptism means. It's a symbol of repentance, and so Jesus was baptized for us, the only person who never needed to be baptized because he didn't need to repent. He did it in our place. Jesus was transfigured for us. Everything in his life was a substitute or a replacement for us. These are the two things we must really know with the content of the gospel. We must know that these things that we read about in verses 3 through 8 are historical and that they were a substitute for us. Let me give you a few examples of how this knowledge can be applied in a spiritual conversation. I remember speaking a few years ago with a de-churched Christian, Uh, someone I had talked with on many occasions before, and so we had the context of an acquaintanceship, at least, and this person knew I was a Christian, and they vaguely believed in God, but didn't actively follow Jesus. And we got to talking about some serious matters, and I found out that this person's sibling, someone in their 50s, had just recently passed away, tragically. And one of the things they began sharing with me is that a lot of the, the pious American platitudes that people had begun to share with them were not very comforting. You see there's this kind of vague Americanized view of the afterlife that everybody goes to heaven and that when our loved ones die, somehow everyone becomes omniscient and they can look down and all of a sudden they know everything that's going on on planet earth all at once, which is, by the way, not what Christians believe. But this particular person was sharing with me, man, that's not all that comforting. I'm not finding that comforting. My sibling just died. And people are giving me platitudes. And I didn't offer a platitude, but we had been talking for a while, and I just shared a historical aspect of the life of Christ and how it was a substitute for me. And I just said, I agree. That's why the only hope I have is in someone who actually conquered death in their body. And that's what gives me hope. Offered a historical aspect of the life of Christ, and the person was like, huh, never really thought about that. Another example. In a similar vein, uh, I was talking with a different person who didn't have much respect for the church. Very common in our day and time, by the way. And I remember discussing how he had lost his job and uh, his mom's health was declining and his girlfriend had broken up with him. Basically, his life had become a country song. Now, I didn't interject what I'm about to say out of nowhere. We had been talking for a while and we had been getting to this point. But eventually, I brought up the incarnation of Christ. The fact that God became fully human in the first place. And I said, you know, this is, what gives me comfort in moments like this is knowing that Jesus knew exactly how this felt. He was fully God, but fully man. And fully man, I should say. And he knows what it feels like. He knows every human pain there was to suffer. So he's with you in that, man. Maybe, if you would be open to it, maybe you should talk to him about it, because he would understand. Again, I brought this circumstance, back to the life of Christ, something historical, and showed how Christ was a substitute for them. And you can do this with any aspect of the life of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, even his ascension into heaven. And if you do that in a relationship that you already have with somebody, you don't want to like spring this kind of stuff on people right away, but if you do it in a natural flow of a conversation, you can give people hope and comfort what they need. Now, some of you may object and say, "Hey, look! I've been in conversations though where that knowledge that you're talking about is not enough. I have been in in spiritual conversations where the other person seems to know a lot. They know a lot about philosophy. They know a lot about theology, and they still reject Christianity. They still reject Jesus, and I get stuck. So you're not giving me enough information. Okay, that might be true. In which case, I could we. Who wants to? If you're with me, we'll do a whole class for a whole year. Right? Okay." And no, seriously, uh, w- one of the greatest Christian thinkers of our time is recently deceased, was a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. If that's you, read these two books. The Reason for God, which was a New York Times bestseller, and then, which was less popular, a second book, which is probably more helpful, I think, called Making Sense of God. It's longer, it's a pretty tough read, fair warning. But if, you, if you're feeling like, I'm stuck and there's this person I know and I don't feel like I know enough, Reason for God, Making Sense of God. By Tim Keller, Timothy Keller. Even still, most of your interactions will not be intellectual. People don't convert by being intellectually converted to Jesus. Most of the time, that kind of understanding and deep work is done to like, take people's objections away. Remember C.S. Lewis's story. He had objections to Christianity. And when he was given good intellectual arguments, those objections crumbled, but he still didn't become a Christian. Now, most of you then won't have the time or the understanding to be like a super philosophical scholar. That's why just knowing the life of Christ and knowing that it's a substitute for people is often good enough. So that's knowing the content of the gospel. The second thing we should know is the invisible Jesus. We should know the invisible Jesus. Okay, there's a repeated word in this passage. We should at first take Literally, and then we should take metaphorically for our own lives. It's the word appear. Happened several, time in, several times in this passage, beginning with verse 5. Uh, Jesus appeared. After he had been resurrected in his body, he just starts appearing everywhere. He appears to Peter, and then he appears to the 12 disciples. Then he appears to 500. He appears to James, and then he appears to Paul. I think that's five times in total. And by what that meant, he appeared among them in his flesh to literally be felt, seen. Touched. Yet curiously, this is also the language that Peter himself, one of Jesus' closest disciples, this is the language that Peter uses in his book, a little to the right of 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter. In 1 Peter's chapter 1 and 5, Peter is using the phrase appear to describe the second coming of Jesus. Jesus said he would come again and he would right all wrongs, and all the earth would be filled with justice and righteousness. And Peter uses the phrase appearing or the revealing of Jesus, not the phrase coming again. Because Christians believe that all persons in the Godhead of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, share all the divine attributes, which means Jesus is omniscient, Jesus is all-knowing, Jesus is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's also omnipresent. Through the Holy Spirit, the physical embodied Jesus is still present anywhere he desires to be. Jesus is omnipresent. Present and so when Peter says that Jesus will appear someday, he's saying basically he's right in our midst right now. It's just that someday we'll see it. Someday the veil, the curtains of the world, will be pulled back, and will Jesus will appear? And he's been there the whole time. Just like he appeared in his post-resurrection encounters to all these disciples, he will appear to us someday. And in the meantime, he's invisible. In the meantime, as verses one and two tell us, stand firm in the gospel. This historical truth, remind yourself of it. Feed yourself on it. By the way, this is 15 out of 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians where Paul's been talking about the cross a lot. And he just keeps talking about it. And here he is in the 15th chapter doing it again. And he's saying, oh, don't forget that Jesus is invisibly present to you. This makes me think of Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. He was this little grasshopper who followed Pinocchio around. He was acting as his little conscience, and he'd like whisper in his ear. And a lot of times he wouldn't be visible to other characters in the play, but he would still tell Pinocchio what he should do. A lot of times Pinocchio would ignore it. Cautionary tale, I know. But if you're familiar with the movie Pinocchio, you know that Jiminy Cricket was like this invisible guide. And that's kind of how Jesus is is invisibly present to us. And he can be present in these conversations that we have with other people in evangelistic interactions so we can look out for how we can share him because we can look for him to show up anywhere. I think Jennifer last week and my mom this week exemplified that well. Both of their evangelistic interactions or interactions of just sharing their faith, even with people who have been wounded by the church, were rooted in prayer, Jesus, show me where I need to be showing up. And then they had the eyes to see where he was actually showing up, where he was becoming visible, metaphorically speaking. I must admit that their examples far outpace my own. Even as a pastor, I actually schedule time for relationship building. I schedule time for evangelism. uh, And I often pray about it with the Lord. But I can think of dozens of times in the last few months where a conversation might have been moving uh, more seriously seriously but I opted to talk about the weather or politics or sports instead. Because that's easy, isn't it? And sometimes we're just too tired and we just talk about that instead of talking about just sharing Jesus. When, Especially if the conversation's already going there. So much easier to do. This prayer for watchfulness is something I need to grow in, and it's a really important thing to know because the people that know that Jesus could show up at any time, that he is invisible but he is constantly present, the people that really know that and live it out are so much more effective than people who try than Christians who try to win debates with non-Christians. Look for Jesus to appear in any conversation. Lastly, we should know our own stories. We should know our own stories. This is a subtle but often overlooked idea in evangelistic endeavors. But notice Paul saying, I want you to stand firm in the gospel. And then verses 3 through 8, here's what the gospel is. And then what does he do in verse 9? For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is offering, yet... Yeah, it's a little bit of background here, but Paul's saying, I get to be called an apostle because Jesus actually appeared to me. Literally, he appeared to me. I get to be called an apostle, but I'm, not, I'm the worst one because I used to kill Christians. And he's offering his own story in the middle of talking about the gospel. And then he invokes the grace of God three times in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a great life verse, isn't it? If you want a life verse... <laughs> By the grace of God, I am what I am. I think when we, when we put these two together, that there really are two, at least at least two ingredients to a life story. One is, here's my rebellion against the Lord. Here's my sin. Here's what I still struggle with. And then the other is, here's how the grace of God is making a difference in my life. Those are at least two ingredients. Here's how the grace of God saves me. I still have an addiction, and the grace of God, he loves me anyway. There's always at least two ingredients to a story. And I think in American life, our tendency is to run away from one half of our story or the other. Some of us run away from the ugly parts of our story, the rebellious parts of us that run away from God. That could be sin in the distant past or sin that still plagues you. And so a lot of times we try to ignore it or pretend it isn't there, Um, and it's hard for us to be real in conversation with people. In evangelistic endeavors, this looks like the person who tries to present a polished version of themselves, and so their testimony is, I used to struggle with something, and now Jesus fixed me. By the way, this is one of the reasons I really uh, struggle when people use the term broken as a synonym for sin, because if broken is our, our assumption for sin, then what needs to be rectified is that I need to be fixed, and I don't think that's the gospel, Ultimately, Jesus will heal me, yes, but no, no, I'm in rebellion against God and I need to lay down my arms and I need someone to say, I love you, I love my enemy. That's the gospel. And a lot of us don't like that. That makes us feel uncomfortable and so we don't share those parts of us. And for many people then, particularly younger generations, they are repelled by Christians who ignore the sin in their lives. If Christianity means trying to be perfect and inauthentic, then they don't want any part of it. Now, that's one half of missing our story. There's another half. Alternatively, there's a subcurrent of people who want to run away from the grace part of the story. There is a huge subcurrent on TikTok and Instagram nowadays who celebrate their dysfunctions, becoming their truly authentic selves. So they never have to change at all and therefore don't have to subject themselves to grace. Now, just a little side note here because when I bring up social media, it's my chance to, you know, slam on social media. There is no social media platform that helps you be more authentic. All social media is towards more inauthenticity. Even the social media app Be Real, which is trying to be more authentic Right, which is you just take a picture at whatever time of day you, that the app tells you to take it, and it's random every time of day, which assumes that your phone is always with you and which begins to program your life to thinking that you need to always be ready to take that picture. All social media leads towards inauthenticity. Just a side point, but it's true. All right. Grace has no part to play with the folks who always want to be, in, or always want to be authentic but never want to change. There are others in this vein who don't want anything to do with the grace of God. This is the self-improvement crowd. Oh, I resonate with my shortcomings, but I'm the one who overcomes them. This can happen in, in the fitness world. This happens with the online manosphere, you know, the internet for men. And on right-leaning nationalism, there's a lot of, we don't need God, we don't need grace, that's for weak people. This category of people wants to understand or identify with their dysfunction, sin, and rebellion, but they don't want the grace But this repels people too because the people who have struggled with something over and over and over again, the people who tried to overcome an addiction and can't, uh, the people who know life should be better but it's out of their circumstances to make better, those people are repelled by the self-help crowd too or by the crowd who thinks, I'm just going to be my authentic self. I never have to change. Knowing your own story means owning the sin and rebellious parts and it also means owning the grace of god for yourself because that's more attractive to people both if you want to be somebody who wants others to know jesus don't be afraid to know your own story the good and the bad the sin and the grace what would that look like for you i know some of your stories i know some of them more deeply than others what would it look like for you to own both Okay, so what should you know? You should know the content of the gospel. You should know the invisible Jesus, that he could appear in any conversation. And lastly, you should know your own story. And that will be enough. Enough knowledge in most of your interactions. Did you ever see the movie Slumdog Millionaire? It's a story of an impoverished young Indian man who grew up in the slums of Mumbai, and incredibly, somehow, he finds himself on the game show who wants to be a millionaire. And if you're familiar with that game show, the premise is you get asked one question. If you get it correct, you go up one rung in earnings, and you can get all the way up to a million dollars, and each rung, the question gets a little harder. And the movie is based on a set of continual flashbacks. This impoverished young man gets put in the chair, but every question that he gets asked somehow has some analog somewhere in his past where that's how he would know the right answer to the question and it was some bit of suffering that he had to go through or it was, it was some weird circumstance that he happened to witness or it was some historical event he just happened to be on the scene for and he winds up knowing lots of answers to the question because he just had personally experienced them. I'm not going to tell you how the movie ends, but the premise is that he had just enough knowledge. He had no formal education, but he knew just enough. Do you know that all the all-knowing, all-present Jesus has given you just enough of what you need? Maybe you're not supposed to converse with an Oxford professor, but Jesus puts you in the life of your next-door neighbor, and you have just the right knowledge that they need. Maybe it's the knowledge of your own story. Maybe it's the knowledge of Jesus. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you're not supposed to find a perfect stranger off the street, but your coworker needs someone to listen to them. And you'll have just the right one sentence to say after an hour of listening. And Jesus has given you what you need most of all the saving knowledge of Him, knowing Him. He wants us to know his death and his resurrection for us, to stand firm, as Paul says in it. And he wants us to know that he is present even now, because he is. And he wants us to know ourselves that we might show his grace in our lives. He knows all the bad in our lives, all the failures, all the times we fail at evangelism. And he loves us anyway. And knowing that is enough. Let's pray. Our Father, help us overcome our fear. Give us the courage that we need just to share what we do know. And maybe we'll sound like a bunch of fishermen to an educated Jewish council like you did in the book of Acts. Lord, your spirit goes forth anyway, so help us to be faithful to what you have called us to. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.